Welcome to the Baptist Pulpit. This podcast is designed to introduce to the audience Baptist preachers, both living currently in America or across the world, and also to introduce classic speakers, men of the past. There were Baptist preachers that have inspired men like myself for years to preach the Word of God. And they also, through their preaching, highlight Baptistic principles. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Pulpit. Our featured preacher for today is Dr. Clarence Sexton. He was born on October 10th, 1948 in Selma, Alabama. He was the oldest of four children. His family had a very turbulent beginning after moving 19 times before uh, reaching the third grade. He finally settled in Maryville, Tennessee when he was eight years old. The household was very turbulent and his parents divorced when he was 12. Two years later, on Easter Sunday morning, Preston Thomas Sexton, his dad, passed away. His mom, Ruby Lee Sexton, had a profound influence on his life. As a single parent, she reared the four children, often working multiple jobs. When Clarence was 14, he began attending the First Baptist Church in Maryville, Tennessee. On a Wednesday evening, after a youth uh, choir practice, the director asked him if he was a Christian. Realizing that Clarence was lost, the choir director took him to meet the pastor, And a short time later, Dr. J. William Harbin led Clarence Sexton to trust Christ as his Savior. He attended high school, um, then he was married. uh, Then during a tent revival, while listening to the preaching of Dr. C.E. Autry, God called Clarence Sexton into Christian service on July 27, 1967. He called his pastor, and then he uh, got ministerial training, uh, started pastoring, Then God led him, he was pastoring in uh, Southern Baptist circles, and God led him to go uh, work under the ministry of Dr. Lee Robertson in Chattanooga. And then from there, God led him back into pastoring. And then in 1988, 1988, Temple Baptist Church in Knoxville, Tennessee, called him to consider being their pastor. And so he moved there. He's been there for many, many years. Pray that you enjoy the preaching today in the Baptist pulpit from Dr. Clarence Sexton. I'd like you to take the Word of God, please, and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles, the 25th chapter. I hope I've gotten beyond the place after 41 years of preaching where I'm trying to impress you. I do want to please the Lord. We're going to begin to read in 2 Chronicles chapter 25 and verse 1. And I think we find an amazing story here. And I want to bring your attention, I trust, to one tremendous truth that God gives us in this passage. I believe it's a life-changing truth, as all truth is. Life-changing. And may the Lord drive it deep into our hearts. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 25, beginning with verse 1, Amaziah was twenty and five years old when he began to reign, 
And he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a perfect heart. Now it came to pass when the kingdom was established to him that he slew his servants that had killed the king, his father. But he slew not their children, but did as is written in the law in the book of Moses. For the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not die for the children, neither shall the children die for the fathers. But every man shall die for his own sin. Moreover, Amaziah gathered Judah together and made them captains over thousands and captains over hundreds, according to the houses of their fathers, throughout all Judah and Benjamin. And he numbered them from twenty years old and above, and found them three hundred thousand choice men, able to go forth to war, that could handle spear and shield. He hired also an hundred thousand mighty men of valor out of Israel for an hundred talents of silver. But there came a man of God to him, saying, O king, Let not the army of Israel go with thee, for the Lord is not with Israel, to wit, with all the children of Ephraim. But if thou wilt go, do it. Be strong for the battle. God shall make thee fall before the enemy, for God hath power to help and to cast down. And Amaziah said to the man of God, But what shall we do for the hundred talents which I have given to the army of Israel. And the man of God answered, The Lord is able to give thee much more than this. Then Amaziah separated them, to wit, the army that was come to him out of Ephraim, to go home again. Wherefore, their anger was greatly kindled against Judah, and they returned home in great anger. And Amaziah strengthened himself and led forth his people and went to the valley of salt and smote the children of Seir ten thousand. And other ten thousand left alive did the children of Judah carry away captive and brought them under the top of the rock and cast them down from the top of the rock. that They were all broken in pieces. And the soldiers of the army of which Amaziah sent back that they should not go with him to battle, fell upon the cities of Judah from Samaria, even unto Beth Haran, and smote three thousand of them and took much spoil. Now it came to pass, after that Amaziah was come from the slaughter of the Edomites, that he brought the gods of the children of Seir and set them up to be his gods and bowed down himself before them, And burn incense unto them. Wherefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Amaziah, and he sent unto him a prophet, which said unto him, Why hast thou sought after the gods of the people which could not deliver their own people out of thine hand? It came to pass, as he talked with him, that the king said unto him, Art thou made of the king's counsel? Forbear. Why shouldest thou be smitten? Then the prophet forbear and said, 
I know that God hath determined to destroy thee, because thou hast done this, and hast not hearkened unto my counsel. If you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, I want you to mark this expression, if you would, please. It's found in the ninth verse, the closing part. And this, this statement given by the man of God, I trust will be something all of us remember. I use this as a title for this message. The Lord is able to give thee much more than this. The Lord is able to give thee much more than this. When I was about 12 years old, my father and mother announced to us one day that they were going to get a divorce. I was the oldest of four children. I had seen this coming for a long time. My mother, as a matter of fact, had been telling me at night. While my father was gone, she could no longer live with him. And for threats and lots of reasons. But it was a horrible day that day when they they stood in front of us as my brother, two sisters and I, sat on the sofa. Both my mother and father were crying and they said, we're going to end this marriage. That was a sad day. A very sad day. My brother and I decided, because my father was so brokenhearted, we'd go with him. And so we left our mother and two sisters, went out the door, onto the screen porch, out the screen door into the car, got in the car with Daddy. We were all crying, everybody, all of us crying. We got in the car, we couldn't talk, we just cried. He drove maybe an hour, hour and a half, and stopped the car, and leaned over to us and said, I just can't do this. There's no way I can take care of you. I'm going to be working. My father was a professional gambler and ran beer joints and that type of thing. And he said, I I won't be able to take care of you. And we didn't know what was going to happen. He turned the car around, drove us back to the house. My mother and two sisters were still seated on the sofa, crying. And we ran, of course, into the house, embraced them. My father drove away. About six months later, he came back to the house and he said to my mother, Is it possible that I could take my oldest son with me for the day? And she agreed. My father and I, just the two of us, left our little house there at 114 South Houston Street in Maryville, Tennessee. And we drove down 411 Highway and turned left on Calderwood Highway and drove down to the road Tees and took a left up into the mountains, winding along the river up to Fontana. And when we got up into the mountains... He stopped the car, pulled the side of the road, and he said, I brought you all this way to tell you something. He said, I've wasted my entire life, all of it, all of it. I've been to the doctor. The doctor said, I'm not going to live. And he was dead within 18 months. And he said, I I brought you all this way to try to do something for you. And that's to ask you to do one thing. Don't make the same mistake with your life. That I have made with mine. That's the greatest sermon I ever heard. No doubt about it. Don't make the same mistake with your life that I uh, made with mine. I came to know the Lord Jesus as my Savior. Asked God to forgive my sin and by faith trusted Christ as Savior as a 14-year-old boy. Dr. J. William Harbin of the First Baptist Church in Maryville, Tennessee led me to Christ. That was a grand and glorious thing. I've never gotten over that. When I was 18 years old, I was listening to the preaching of Dr. C.E. Autry 
in a tent crusade. Dr. Autry was head of the whole mission board for the Southern Baptist Convention and a powerful preacher. And I knew that God was calling me to preach. And I yielded, I yielded my life to be a preacher. I'd been saved and baptized in Southern Baptist Church, called to preach in Southern Baptist Church, announced to my good pastor, Dillard Hagen, that God had called me to preach. It's past midnight when I called him and told him God had called me to preach and I'd answered the Lord's call. And he said to me, then I'm, I'm on a radio program this week and I'll be preaching in the morning and I, I want you to preach <laughs> the very next morning. He got serious about it, didn't he? And so I remember going with him to the radio station and preaching. What a pitiful, pitiful job of it. It's about the worst thing you've ever heard in your life. But when I walked out of the radio station, the radio announcer gave me this reel-to-reel recording. He said, this will mean something to you someday because the first message you ever gave. It's still too painful to listen to, but I, I do remember it. But I felt like I had found what the Lord wanted me to do with my life. My pastor took me off to college. We went to Carson Newman College in Jefferson City, Tennessee, into the president's office. And the president said, I, I, I don't really want ministerial students here. My pastor was so shocked. To be quite frank with you, he knew what kind of people we were. And we'd already been fussing about a lot of things they were doing at the school. And he figured I'd just be more trouble than I'd be worth. And my pastor got a little aggravated, and he said, well, you won't be going there. I wound up going to a little Methodist junior college and graduating from University of Tennessee. And pastoring all the time, I started pastoring when I was 19 years old. And when I finished college at the University of Tennessee, I was headed off to seminary at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. I was going to work in the Travis Avenue Baptist Church with Dr. Dr. Coggin as an evangelism director. And I thought, I have a bright future. But my heart was stirred up because of the issue of the inerrancy of Scripture, Christ and not denominationalism being the head of the church. I could not understand why we would contribute to the cooperative program when they knew that some of that money was going to people in places where they didn't even believe the Bible and supporting professors. It was a tough thing. I don't mean to say it wasn't. It was a tough thing. Because I've never demonized people in the Southern Baptist Convention. I've never demonized the preachers in, that, in the convention. I still have many friends that I made as a boy. Many men and women I know that truly love the Lord. No doubt in my mind about that. But my wife and I decided we would become independent Baptists by conviction. And I announced to the wonderful church I was pastoring. It was a wonderful church that I was going to resign the church and become an independent Baptist. I'd been influenced by some independent Baptists. I'd preached at the First Baptist Church in, in Lilburn, Georgia, and preached at Calvary Baptist Church in uh, Lilburn and some of these places around here. And uh, God was stirring me up, and I just knew that the Lord wanted me to become an independent Baptist. And in 1975, I left the Southern Baptist Convention and became an independent Baptist by conviction. Went to Chattanooga, worked with Dr. Robertson, and, of course, that was in the good providence of God. And then to Madison Avenue Baptist Church in Patterson, New Jersey, 11 miles from New York City. And now, for the last 20 years, I've been the pastor of the Temple Baptist Church in Powell. When I came into the independent Baptist movement, I was convinced that I was a part of, of a group of people who were really people who adhered to the truth. And 
a people that you could refer to as the remnant of people who knew the Lord, loved the Lord, and were truly Baptist people by conviction. I understood that fundamentalism was synonymous with biblical Christianity. And I understood that the position that I had taken was synonymous with biblical Christianity. But I want to tell you something. I'm, I'm not trying to belittle anything or anybody. And I'm an old-time fundamentalist, and I want to die an old-time fundamentalist without any variation in that. But I know in my heart that God has so much more for this movement. I know He does. And you know He does. I know you understand that. I don't know that anybody speaks for a fellowship. You see, that's impossible in my way of thinking because speaking for a fellowship would mean that the fellowship is really a noun and not a verb and somebody's in charge like the pastor of a church. But there can be many people who speak to a fellowship. And I'm speaking not as a young man any longer, but a man who's been preaching more than 40 years. And I'd like to say some things to you because the Lord has much more than this for us. I believe it's more of the same. I remember going into Dr. Robertson's office and saying to him, Dr. Robertson, I'm just chomping the bits. Let me help you any way I can. And I had all kinds of dreams and ideas, and I said, just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And he said, all I want done is more of the same. More of the same. Frankly, I was a little disappointed with that because I was like those Athenians and strangers who came to Athens looking for some new thing. But he wanted me to do more of the same. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we would take this word as a personal word to us? The Lord is able to give thee much more than this. I'm constantly understanding that God's work is bigger than I first imagined it to be. Have you discovered that? And all around this world with six and a half billion people, God is at work doing things we never imagined. And I've often thought, I want to be right in the heart of it, in the heart of it all. If God is moving mightily in this world, I want to be in on that. Don't you? And the Lord is able to give thee much more than this. I wouldn't have you imagine, not for a moment, would I have you imagine that I would discount anything that I've experienced in this movement or And I think I've become entrenched as a part of it. And I'm very pleased with that. But I know the Lord has much more for us. I know He does. There's no doubt in my mind. When it comes to a fellowship of preachers like this, as strong as convictions as we have, we have to understand that we can't transport the personal convictions of our churches upon every person in a fellowship. We have strong convictions in our church, the Temple Baptist Church. We believe that the Christian life is a holy life and that every personal standard should grow out of a desire to live a holy life. It shouldn't start the other way around. We believe that separation is to the Lord and from the world, that Christ himself crowds other things out of our lives. 
And I feel very strongly about that because I believe that's biblical. No doubt about it. And I thank God for what I've learned about separation and about the Word of God and about Baptist convictions. Frankly, I got my Baptist convictions in the Southern Baptist Convention because the men I was around as a young preacher were strong Baptist men. And they recognized that the, the church started, the New Testament church started with Jesus and his disciples, was empowered at Pentecost. If you find some other place to start it, that's fine. We won't argue. But in principle and doctrine, we can trace everything we adhere to this day all the way back through the centuries to the Lord Jesus and his disciples. And I'm grateful that God has led me in this path of truth. But the Lord is able to give thee much more than this. I, I think somehow or another we've gotten the idea that we create our own little world. Nothing wrong with that if we realize it is to be used to influence all the rest of the world. When I was just a boy, I remember my father saying to me, you have to take the polio vaccine. Mr. Jonas Salk, Dr. Salk has discovered the polio vaccine. They're going to put it in a little sugar cube and you're to take the little polio vaccine. Wouldn't it be a horrible thing with all these people getting polio and all these parents frightened to death their children are going to get it if Mr. Salk had invented polio vaccine and never given it out to anybody? You and I are the adherents and the inheritors of the truth of the Word of God. We have a message that needs to be taken all around the world to all people. Oh, may God help us to see this. On one of my trips to the Holy Land, we were driving out from Mount Carmel through a Druid village. And the guide said, in this village, there is an old man in this village. And the way their religion works, the old man in this village knows all the truth concerning this religion. And as he's about to die, that old man finally tells all that to another old man. And then he harbors it in his heart and... When he's about to die, finally, he shares it with another old man. Oh, may God help us to understand that if we are what we say we are, and we believe what we say we believe, if we have the truth, this world needs the truth. And we don't need to hide it from everybody. We need to get it to everybody. Let's rejoice that we are part of this mighty movement of God, but realize there is so much more the Lord has for us. God wants to bless us. That's miraculous that the Lord desires to bless us. We're coming back here to chapter 25 in Second Chronicles, but I want you to look at the very first chapter in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. And the Lord says here, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Then turn, please, to what the Lord said to Abraham. If you have your Bible open in the book of Genesis to the twelfth chapter. And the Word of God says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, 
unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. From the first two people God placed on this earth, and here confirmed again with God's covenant to Abraham, the Lord said, it is my desire to bless you. It's my desire to bless you. What is it to be blessed of God? To be blessed of God is to move beyond all that human ingenuity and human ideas, human schemes and plans can produce. To be blessed of God is to have what God and God alone can give us. And I want what God and God alone can give us. Beloved, if we can explain how it happened, people come to me and they say, how'd you build this school? or How'd you build this church? If you and I can sit down and tell people how we did it, then evidently God didn't do it. There ought to be something so, so unexplainable, so, so almost mysterious about it that we are willing to admit, well, I'll tell you one thing, it wasn't my ability, it wasn't my ingenuity, it wasn't my plans and schemes. I just wanted to be a wholehearted, holy man and let God do what only God could do. The Lord desires to bless us. I want to show you something else while we're working our way back there. I want you to turn to the book of Jeremiah just for a moment. In the 16th chapter of Jeremiah, the Lord says in verse 14 and following, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whether he had driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I will give unto their fathers. Now, what in the world does that mean? For all time since the deliverance from Egyptian bondage to this point in time, the point of reference for God's mighty work in the minds of his people was for them and for the Lord to say to them, you remember Egypt, don't you? You remember the deliverance by the blood? You remember how you came out of Egypt with a high hand? You remember how God brought you to the Red Sea and opened up the sea and you came through? In other words, this was God's point of reference for his mighty work. But God said there's coming a day when the Lord is going to do something so great that Egypt will be so paled by it. You won't talk about Egypt any longer. You're going to talk about this mighty work of God. You'll even forget about what God did in Egypt because what God is going to do is so great. And he's talking about end time things here and how the Lord would gather his people. You and I are living in this moment of human history. And there is a God who wants to do much more than we've ever imagined. I want in on that. I break my heart more than I could explain. It could break my heart more than I could imagine to think that the Lord passed us by. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we're going to be passed by. I don't want to be passed by. 
I, I want it all. I want it all. I want to be in on it all. Do you? Oh, may God help us. May God help us. Would you turn, please, to the gospel according to John? Now, I'm going back to Second Chronicles chapter 25. The Bible says in John chapter 12, verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Would you mark that much fruit? Much fruit. I want the much fruit. I want the much more, don't you? Can you think of something more tragic, can you, than to stand on the threshold of eternity to die and meet God and recognize that we never really lived as God would have us live? Can you imagine dying and meeting God, having lived a life of mediocrity when God had a life of much more? If we live and die and recognize after we're dead we don't have it to do over and we never really lived. According to this verse, it's because when we lived, we never really died. We must die to self. Our plans, our ideas. I'm going back there to Second Chronicles chapter 25. I just want you to remember this. We must remain as dependent upon God as the first time we ever attempted to do anything. We have gained no merit as a movement. None. We have gained no merit as preachers. None. We must be as absolutely dependent upon God as we were the first day we launched out to attempt something, recognizing then that we could not do it in our own strength. In John chapter 15... The Lord said, I am the true vine, and my father is a husband. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Here we have fruit and more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, and ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. May I ask you this question? Do you want the fruit? Do you want more fruit? Or do you want what the Bible says in verse 5? Much fruit. Which do you want? I think we should choose much fruit, don't you? And the Lord is able to give thee much more than this. Shortly after I came to work with Dr. Robertson, I was sitting at a desk in a little office I had. And I wrote a little piece of paper, World Evangelism, W-E, through local churches. And I saw that W-E, World Evangelism, And the little pronoun, plural, we. We. And I had a dream. Honestly. I thought, 
If we really understood God has a mission in this world, and our work is to be in His mission, not to create our own. If we understood God was at work in this world, He's going to use some people we might not imagine He would use. Dear Dr. Hudson used to say, if God doesn't have a hammer, he may use the heel of a shoe to drive a nail. He used to say, if God doesn't have a heel of a shoe, he may get a kitchen knife out of the kitchen drawer. Maybe you heard him enough to hear some of those homespun stories that stuck like glue to our hearts. And I could just see somebody like myself driving a nail in the, in the wall with a shoe, couldn't you? Or not having a hammer and finding a kitchen knife and driving a nail in. Well, you know, everybody God uses may not look like you and may not look like me. They certainly don't talk like me and talk like you. They may be in some far distant part of the world we never imagined where something's going on. But you and I don't ever need to forget that God was at work in this world before we ever arrived in this world. And our work is to get in on what God is doing. To get in on what the Lord is doing. Oh, may God help us to see this. May God help us to do this. Why have we, why have we developed at times the idea that we have a monopoly on God? We don't have any monopoly on God. But I pray God has a monopoly on us. The Lord is at work. And we must engage in His great mission in this world. And I thought we, we could work together. We could encourage one another. We could get the job done God's given us to do. We could understand that the work is to be done through local churches, but it's the work of world evangelism. And churches, individual churches, could take this task to heart. And I've been as guilty, maybe more so, than most. By trying to get the idea that everybody has to do it exactly the way I do it, Say it exactly the way I say it. Sing it exactly the way I sing it. But I want you to know, I've lived long enough to discover that there are people God is blessing and using that don't do it exactly my way. And we need to allow that kind of room in God's family. I've got two boys. They both have my blood in their veins. That's the reason they've done things they shouldn't have done. But one of them has light brown hair and the other has dark hair. They're totally different in the way they appear and their vocal tones. They have some similarities, but they're both my sons. I'm trying to say to you that God has much more for thee. He certainly does. The Lord does. And I believe that our message should be at the heart of all of this. We have what this world needs to hear. We just need to get it out of the barn, that's the seed, and get it in the field throughout the whole world. Oh, may God help us. I want that much fruit. Don't you? Let's go back here just for a few moments to Second Chronicles chapter 25. And I want you to note, this is an amazing story. I'd like you to write this down, would you please, as we consider the man of God. Amaziah is the king of Judah. Judah, of course, the southern kingdom. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. The two tribes of Judah and Benjamin form the southern kingdom. 
And God has taken his hand of blessing off Israel. Amaziah has become king. His father was assassinated by people and his first order of business is to make sure he takes the lives of those who took the life of his own father. Then his second act of business is to build an army. And the Bible says, as he begins on that army, in verse 5, Amaziah gathered Judah together and made them captains over thousands and captains over hundreds, according to the houses of their fathers throughout all of Judah and Benjamin. And he numbered them from 20 years old and above and found them 300,000 choice men able to go forth to war that could handle spear and shield. But that's not enough. No, that won't do. He's got a better idea than God's got. And so he sends a message to the northern kingdom of Israel. And he hires a hundred thousand mighty men of valor out of Israel. And he pays them a hundred talents of silver. Now, these are mercenary men. They're going to get money for what they're doing, but that's not what they're really going to get. They're going to pillage and ruin and steal and murder and pick clean the bodies of the dead as they strip the slain. Everything they can gather like wild vultures they're going to gather. They could not be more excited because they get to kill and to rip and savage and take what they want. They're ready to fight. They don't really care who they fight for. But they're ready to fight. And the Bible says, but, verse 7, there came a man of God. The man of God. To him saying, O king, let not the army of Israel go with thee, for the Lord is not with Israel. To wit, with all the children of Ephraim. The man of God. What's his responsibility? His responsibility is to give God's message. He's going to break through. He's going to make the whole situation uneasy. He's going to break what is not broken. They say if it ain't broke, if it don't fix it, he thinks if it ain't broke, I'm going to break it. And so he breaks it. He breaks it on the king and he says to the king, you are not to do this because there's a God who is real, who intervenes in the lives of men and nations. And God said he has taken his hand off of Israel and you're not to have anything to do with them. Well, that's the message Amaziah didn't want to hear. Because the only way he knew to get the job done was to do it bigger and better with more power than anybody else. And I'm afraid, beloved, that we have become so enamored with size, we have forgotten the idea of sort. When we stand before the Lord, it won't be what size it is. It's going to be what sort it is, the Bible says. And so... The man of God breaks in. He makes the king aware of the Lord. And you and I, who know the truth, are on this earth to make people aware of God. 
When I was just a boy growing up, I had two aunts, Aunt Fanny and Aunt Maddie, both elderly women down in Selma, Alabama, where I was born. And they would talk about the Lord. They were devoted Christian women. And they'd talk about the Lord. They'd try to get everybody in the house saved. I did not become a Christian around those two devoted Christian women, but they made me aware that there was a real God. My father and mother moved about everywhere, and of course we were with them. I lived in 19 different places before I was in the third grade. Finally, when I wound up going to school in the third grade after having just been in school six weeks in the first grade, not at all in the second grade, I went into a classroom with a tall, red-headed lady teaching. Her name was Miss Burns. Now, this may sound strange to you, but I'd been around people who smoked cigarettes all the time and drank beer, and the old stench of stale beer was on them, and the smell of smoke in their hair. And I can remember Miss Burns coming and standing over my desk, and I thought to myself, she smells so clean. This is such a good person. And then she'd talk about the Lord. And she made me aware as an eight-year-old boy that there's a God in heaven. And I came one day to a church service. And a man who was working with young people asked if I'd let the pastor talk to me. And Dr. J. William Harbin sat across from me at the First Baptist Church in Maryville, Tennessee. And pointed me to Jesus Christ. I was not just aware that there was a God. I came to know the Lord as my personal Savior. And my life has never been the same. You and I are not here just to have church or to sing. We are here to make people aware that there is a true God. And to confront them just as the man of God confronted this king. We are to confront people with the truth of the living God. And the truth of the matter is, it is only people who know the truth who can do that. We're living in the greatest opportunity anybody ever had. These are perilous times and people need the truth. The information age is here. People are loaded down with information, so much information they can't even act upon it. But there is such a scarcity of truth. This is our day, our hour, our moment to be used of God. And I believe that's what we see in the man of God. Then I want you to look secondly, please, at the matter of the money. He listened to the man of God, and the man of God said, send these people home. And the king said, hmm, it's going to cost me. What am I going to do with this investment I've made? This hundred talents of silver. Listen to his words. But if thou wilt go, do it, be strong for the battle. God shall make thee fall before the enemy. For God hath power to help and to cast down. And Amaziah said to the man of God, he better be listening because the man of God just told him what was going to happen. And he said, but what shall we do for the hundred talents which I have given to the army of Israel? In other words, I made my plan. I had my idea. I have it all worked out. I've got 300,000 men from Judah, but just to make sure I could win the battle, I added to it another 100,000, and I paid them 100 talents of silver. I got my way of doing it. 
And it's going to cost me something if I do it God's way. Did it ever dawn upon you and me that when we really and truly get down to doing God's work God's way, it's not going to make a lot of sense to a lot of people. It won't. It's like the wall that Nehemiah built and Sanballat and Tobiah said, <laughs> if a fox walks on that wall, it'll fall. You know, let's face facts. You and I aren't ready for reproach. We want, we want to be Main Street Christians. And we want to do it our way. And if not, we're going to convince everybody we can't, it can't be done any other way. I remind you, I'm an old-time fundamentalist by conviction. I remind you, it costs something to leave the Southern Baptist Convention and become an independent Baptist. No doubt in my mind about that. But I ought to remind you also that God is bigger than our movement. We don't like to admit that, but he is. I was preaching in England in a meeting of about 250 people and English pastors. And I said, every speaker was a fundamentalist. Every man given responsibility to sing was a fundamentalist. Everybody teaching the Bible was a fundamentalist. And I looked out in the audience and I saw some people that I thought, what are they doing here? One man said, he was visiting from Canterbury. Another man from a Methodist church. And I said to the people, the Baptist pastor invited me to be there. They've been in London pastoring for more than 40 years. I said, what, what, what are these people doing here? And he said to me, Brother Sexton, when it gets as bad as it is in this country, people are starving to death to hear the word of God. And they'll dart into any meeting they can find just to hear the Bible. Amen. Do you and I realize how desperate this world is? And God may be using the heel of a shoe or a kitchen case knife somewhere. And if He is, let's thank God if there wasn't a hammer there that He had a shoe to use and a case knife to use. I'd like to see more of that attitude in this movement. It gives God the glory instead of trying to get it all for ourselves. And I'm preaching to me. I'm preaching to me. I believe the greatest work God ever let anybody do could be done. It could be done if we'd heed what the Lord says. He said, I sure hate to lose that hundred talents of silver. But nevertheless, he said, you guys can go home. And when he said it, they went on a rampage. They killed 3,000 people along the border of Judah. Excuse me. They robbed and raped and pillaged and stole everything they could get their hands on. But it was still the right thing for the king to do. Because nothing should have been used in God's work, 
that God didn't sanction and put his hand on. You and I have the greatest weapon the world has ever known. The Word of God, the power of God, the power of prayer. I thought when dear brother Bobby was preaching a moment ago how I used to conduct meetings. And I'd go and the preacher would say, now, you know, we've got, some, we've got some souls to go after this week. And we'd wear ourselves out during the day. And it was good. Knocking on doors, trying to get people saved. And we'd have some of those converts come to the meeting at night. It did something. And we'd get in those old-fashioned prayer meetings. You know what it's like, don't you? Where have they gone? Where have they gone? We have substituted them for a hundred thousand men from Israel and a hundred talents of silver. I remember spontaneous prayer meetings after revival services where we'd pray all night. I was in two meetings, one over here in Snellville, Georgia, where you could not get a seat in the building. The aisles were filled. The platform was filled. Nobody could respond to come forward because there's so many people in the building, you couldn't get forward. We had to crawl over the top of people trying to get to people to help them with the Lord. I conducted a meeting in the own church I pastored in Lenore City, Tennessee. The last Southern Baptist church I pastored. Every seat was filled. Every aisle was filled. The platform was filled. The back rooms were filled. And I saw people walk on the tops of the pews trying to get to the altar to get saved and get help that they needed from the Lord. And spontaneously, we'd pray all night long and ask God to move and work in a mighty way. I miss that! But I trade all of that! I gave all that up! And so did you to hire a hundred thousand mercenaries for a hundred talents of silver. And God is moving mightily In my heart, I know He is. I sense something's about to break in this movement. I believe God is working because there is so much more God wants to do. And I want it. I want it. The third thing here, not only the matter of the money, the man of God, but the much more. The much more. The king is complaining. Listen to him gripe. What shall we do for the hundred talents which I've given to the army of Israel? You know, if we ever have a divine breakthrough, there probably never will be another methods meeting. Honestly. And I've had a lot of them myself. But we won't need them anymore. Because the Spirit of God will do what we weren't able to do. He said, I I don't know about that. I hate to lose that hundred talents which I have given to the army of Israel. And I love, I love this. The man of God answered, the Lord is able to give thee much more than this. Do we still believe that? Do we still believe the Lord is able to give much more than this? Dr. Robertson said once to me in his office, Sit down, son. I want to tell you something. We had averaged over 9,000 in Sunday school. And he said, I want you to know something. This could be the foundation on which everything else is built. Or this could be something 
where we just talk someday about what used to be. He said, have you ever heard of W.B. Riley? I said, yes, sir. He said, over there are his books. He said, he was a real hero of mine. Strong fundamentalist. But his church no longer exists. And his school no longer exists. And he said, someday... The great church here you call great, people call great, and the great school you call great, people call great, could cease to exist. And I said to him, Dr. Robertson, with all due respect, that doesn't make any sense to me. But he was a wiser man than I realized at that moment. I wonder what you and I are going to tell our grandchildren And they'll tell their children about this movement. Will it be stories of what used to be and could have been? Or will it be the Lord is able to give thee much more than this? Grant Carter sitting back there. Grant Carter was a raw bone, rock ribbed, fundamentalist, independent Baptist pre-millennial, white horse riding preacher. And he was in the town I pastored in, in the last church I pastored in the convention. And he and his buddy used to talk to me. I remember preaching one day on the second coming of Christ and a, a medical doctor's widow came to me. She said, Pastor, do you, do you know that you're a premillennialist?" And I said, no ma'am. She said, well, after listening to you, let me tell you, you are. And I need to tell you something. You and I are the only two in this church. <laughs> and I can remember Brother Carter bearing down on me. Bob Bevington bearing down on me. And I remember hearing Lee Robertson and visiting the Great Highland Park Baptist Church. And I thought, these people have gotten hold of something. They found the much more. But I wonder, when young men are visiting with us today and listen to us speak, do they have the same conviction that we found the much more? Sometimes I feel like I'm with Lewis and Clark and I stop short of the Pacific Ocean. When they were traveling and pioneering and discovering at the orders of President Thomas Jefferson, They got near the Pacific coast and found a body of water. But Lewis and Clark knew that wasn't the ocean. And they pressed on a little further. And they found the vast, immense ocean. And I believe sometimes you and I have found a little body of water. And we're just short of the ocean. I want to find that ocean. Before I die, I want to find that ocean. The Lord is able to give thee much more than this. Mother, father, my little mother had a sixth grade education. She left home when she was 11 years old because of an abusive stepfather. She had nothing in this world. But she used to say to me over and over, Honey, God has something special for you. If she said it once, she said it a hundred times. She said, honey, God has something special for you.
And I'd like to say to all of you, let me give my mother's message to you. God has something special for you. The Lord is able to give thee much more than this. When Mrs. Robertson died, they called me and said, Clarence, we want you to conduct her funeral. My wife and I were broken hearted over her death. Dr. Robertson rolled over and found her dead in the bed about six o'clock in the morning. My wife had talked to her the night before. They had such a wonderful conversation. I conducted her funeral. A few days later, we were back in Chattanooga just to spend some time with Dr. Robertson. Evelyn and I picked him up, took him to Wally's. And he was riding in the front seat with me. And if I live to be a very old man, unless I lose my mind, I'll never forget this. The great Lee Robertson, most admired preacher in America, the most godlike man I have ever known, and my spiritual father, and many of you would say your spiritual father. I said to Dr. Robertson, What are you thinking? It was past 95. I said, what are you thinking? He said, Clarence, I'm not thinking. I'm just living on memories. I said, well, what is on your mind? Surely you're thinking about something. And he said to me, oh, yes, son. I said, would you please tell me? And he said, I'm thinking this. I should have believed God for more. I was stunned. I said, Dr. Robertson, the church, the schools, the radio station, the camp, the worldwide ministry, he said, shh, I know all of that. But I'm near the end. And I want to tell you something. I know I could have and I should have Believed God for more. And if the greatest man I've ever known could say that, I say to you, the Lord is able to give thee much more than this. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Pulpit. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We pray that through the challenging preaching of the Word of God today, that you will be encouraged to stay faithful in preaching the Word and hearing the Word. Lester Roloff many years ago said, the world's greatest need is preaching preachers. Let's pray that in this day and this hour, we will stay faithful to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening to The Baptist Pulpit.